Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Department 12 podcast, where we talk about everything industrial and organizational psychology. I am joined today by Dr. Jared Locke. How are you today? I'm very well, Ben. Thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation because there's a, a couple of topics we wanted to cover. How did you first learn about industrial and organizational psychology? That's a it's a funny question. It, it might be a longer response than you requested, but I, I grew up in Kansas. My, my parents were farmers and both of my brother and, and my dad also worked for John Deere for about 27 years before owning his own dealership. So a lot of entrepreneurialism in the house. My oldest brother went to risk arbitrage on Wall Street. My other brother went the insurance, then banking, then uh, finance route. And I kind of wanted to black sheep out and not go <laughs> down that path. So I thought I wanted to be Sigmund Freud. And at the time, I took an intro to psychology class, and they said there's all these different kinds of psychology. And and one of them is this thing called industrial, and you work with businesses instead of, you know, people, if you will, and that's a growing field, and, and it's there. And I, I didn't really give it much thought, because, again, I thought I wanted to be Sigmund Freud. And you move forward to your junior year of college, and I decided I should probably pay attention, so I started going to class. I started sitting <laughs> closer to the front of, of class and, and asking questions, and I thought I should get a job in the field. So I went to a, a psychiatric center for, for employment, and I was a psych tech, and so they at least gave me keys, and I could could do this and that, but mostly just babysitting and, and doing that stuff. And and I just, I, I realized that I probably didn't have the empathy that I needed to be in that industry. So I'm like, oh crud, I'm a junior, what am I going to do? And and so from there, I went back and thought about, well, you know, this this kind of business thing is important in my family and they're, they're, everyone seems good at it. And clinical psychology probably isn't it. So Industrial psychology, here we come. And it was interesting because I didn't I didn't know what industrial psychology was in, as an undergrad. And in fact, mm -hmm. my two undergrad professors who I worked with, the one Rick Snyder, had to bring an ex-professor in that knew a little bit about consulting to organizations. And I, I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And so I kind of lucked in, I guess, Ben. It is amazing to me how often our stories begin with clinical or counseling psych. And then after you find out what that actually entails, it's sort of like, okay, well, I'm still interested in people and what makes them tick. I still want to do this thing called psychology. Well, what do I do now? So I understand in graduate school, uh, you studied under the Hogans. And so this is a topic I thought you could share a little bit about because these are names, uh, particularly for, for newer listeners, maybe graduate students now that they're going to hear and they think maybe they should know who that is, but they don't quite know who that is. So could you just tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with the Hogans in graduate school? Yeah. Um, following along with that, Ben, I, I got accepted into four or five PhD programs. And again, like I said, I didn't know what a, what a Hogan was, and I didn't know what an IO psychologist was. So as I went to these visits to these universities, I my, my the kid that they had walk you around and show you around, I'd, I'd invariably have them take me to the library, and there was a thing back then called Psychlit, and I would say, "What are your professors' names?" And I'd type them in, and 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 you'd see how many things they'd published, because I assume you know you're supposed to publish, and that's how you get there. And and most of the places, the the, the publish rate was low. There wasn't a lot of stuff. And I I went to the University of Tulsa, which is you know just about three and a half hours from Kansas City, and and they had the stack of stuff 
sitting right there. And part of the stack of stuff was this the, this thing called the Handbook of Industrial Psychology. And and there were two two of those books there, the green one and the uh, red one. And, and one of them was a chapter by Bob Hogan, and the other one was a chapter by Joyce Hogan. So I thought, well, if, if these guys are writing about industrial psychology, they must they must be pretty good psychologists. So I guess I'll go here. So again, I kind of lucked into to, to even finding the University of Tulsa. And to this day, I, I don't know why they accepted me or how I got there or anything. But Bob and Joyce Hogan, if you want to think about it, Bob Hogan is probably the lead personality psychologist in the world, if you will. And what he did in, is, in a lot of ways, paved the way for the rest of us. He bit irascible, highly intelligent, but believes in what he believes and is, is willing to discuss it with others. And, you know, he took it on the chin. Those, those kids out there that are listening, the, the students, there's this thing called situational behaviorism. There's things called response theory issues. And things that you probably take for granted now were big fights way back then. And, and he took on every single one of those fights and, and worked on it as as a professor, I don't know, it, it's a little bit more meritocratic. You you had to absolutely raise your hand and you had to absolutely know what you were talking about. And mm-hmm. in order to succeed with him, you really had to be able to think psychology, okay? Not mm-hmm. just a book, not repeating theories or anything like that, but truly think psychology. Joyce Hogan, man, nuts and bolts, great researcher, okay? And nuts and bolts teach you the tools of the trade. And so while Bob was a little more theoretical and, hey, let's talk psychology and let's, let's make connections between things that, that, that may not seem to be connected and, and let's bring in anthropology and sociology, and let's talk about all these different connections. Joyce Hogan was job analysis, selection, criterion-related validity studies, success rates versus hit rates. Let's go find a, a company in town to do something with. And, and so she really was the was the kind of the leading charge of putting tools in the belt. And, you know, Ben, I know you have a lot of students listening. One of the pieces of advice I give students I got from her, which is learn in graduate school, learn something, whether mm. it's an assessment that you can learn how to interpret, or I know how to use the PAQ job analysis tool, or I know how to do this kind of thing, or I can do a compensation study. Learn a tool because mm. when you go to your employer, all you've got is your energy. They're <laughs> going to have to give you all of the skills. And so, so at least with a tool, you can raise your hand and say, you know, I don't know if this matters to you, but I know how to do this one thing. Mm-hmm. And I can do that here while you're teaching me stuff. And mm-hmm. it just goes a long way. So it's fascinating. Yeah. I offer something more than just my energy and enthusiasm, <laughs> right? And and what it does it is it also for the or the new 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 employees it lets the organization know, hey, we're in a relationship and there's a handshake between us. And part of this handshake is I know you're going to have to give me a lot of time and energy and I'm going to be slower than you need at least up front. In return, I don't have much to offer but my energy and enthusiasm. And I also yeah. have this other little thing here too. And and that little thing might be the difference between getting that job or not. It's great advice. So speaking of careers, you know, many years later, you are the founder of the JDL Group, LLC. And one of the areas that, that your consultancy focuses on is organizational culture. So that's the meat of today's conversation. How do you define or operationalize organizational culture? You know, when I'm talking to somebody about a car or a tree or a house, 
I know that we mean the same thing when we use those words. We're referring to the same reality out there in the universe. But when I use the phrase organizational culture, I sometimes get the feeling that we're not defining it the same way. Yeah, that's funny. One of the things I've been taught a long time ago is that if there's anything useful to say in the world, probably psychologists will muck it up and make it more difficult (laughs) than it needs to be. And I think the concept of culture is, is one of those, right? And and you know we we as 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 psychologists get so wrapped up in well that's a value that's not culture or that's a mission that's not or that's a vision not a this or <laughs> that's a this and not a that and and there's all and and we just sit there and ramble at each other over and over again on what's the right definition what is it that, that we're supposed to do where is it that we're supposed to go and in the meantime CEOs and others are just like hey I'm done with this I'm I'm going to go look look somewhere else for my answer. And so my operationalization of culture takes on different forms in different places for different reasons, quite frankly. When I'm lo- and, and so as an example, when I am talking to most organizations about culture, what I'm trying to get to is here's how we do stuff here right? Here's the way we talk. Here's the things we do. Here's how we approach the market. Here's the, here's the, the things that will, will get you in trouble around here. And here's the things that will get you rewarded around here. And so mm-hmm. it's a very practical definition. When I'm talking to an executive about culture and their impact on culture, oftentimes it's about their personal pillars, if you will, the, the, the things they stand on, the things they believe in, how they mm-hmm. manage others, the the handshake negotiation they make with the people around them and what that looks like. In general, though, for me, organizational culture, and this is where the I and the O of psychology meet up for me, mm-hmm. organizational culture is in a lot of ways a buildup of the, the connections between all of the individual personalities in the organization. All right. Now, obviously, the the, the personalities at the top matter a little bit more. I do absolutely believe the culture trickles down from above and 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 that's where it comes from. But what 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 we're looking at is is trying to understand the connectivity between all of those people's individual characteristics and what are the places where they all seem to have to agree. Okay, And if you can find those two or three places where kind of everyone believes the same stuff, that's a that's a starting point for both building, changing, evolving, solidifying a culture. So you recommend starting with looking for those areas of overlap or agreement as indicators of what the culture is. I've heard other people talk about organizational culture just in terms of of what they want to change or what they aspire to. So there's this idea of the aspirational culture, but then there's, you know, the actual culture, like the culture that is alive and breathing in the organization today. Which of those two do you think is more important? I don't think you can change if you don't know what you're changing from, Ben. And, mm-hmm. and so much like I will say, and this is a line I use often, job analysis is the cornerstone of all human resource activities. I do believe that understanding your current culture is absolutely necessary to know where you're going because aspirational culture is basically jumping a chasm, right? We are today to who we want to be tomorrow. And if you don't know 
what the chasm is, how big it's going to be, what the differences are that are going to happen based on that, then you have you have a very difficult time getting there. And one of the things, if you only focus on aspirational culture, one of the things you can't predict, and my company has, has done a great job and, and have put together models that will actually predict the speed of change, Okay. And mm-hmm. I think the speed of change is a really interesting topic. And if you don't know who you are today and you can't identify the distance of jumping or the chasm that you have to get to to go to where you want to be tomorrow, mm-hmm. you, won't, you, can't, you can't predict the speed. Okay. And, and so one of the things my company does, I think that's a little unique, I'm not pushing my company or anything like that, but it just came out as a, as a, as a reflection of, of why do all these change things take longer than people suggest? And, I, and it's just because they're not understanding it. And so we're able to actually look at, at current culture and, and what's really there. And that's not that stuff on the wall. Okay, so one of the first things that we do is we say, okay, you say this is the stuff on the wall that's the most important stuff to you. Employees are our most important asset, usually shows up somewhere around there. And then you assess the exec team with a measure of standard personality or or derailment or or their value system. And you see that altruism is about a zero and commerce is about a 99, right? So they care about money, they don't care about people. And so part of what we do, depending on where we're going is is determine how much of that writing on the wall is actually true okay mm-hmm. and because you're the one place where you're not where, where you you can't lie is to your employees because they they see your actions every day sites like Glassdoor or indeed where employees are invited to share their opinion about an employer in a anonymous way to your mind is that a valid way to learn about the real culture of a company or do you think that not representative. I'm trying to organize all the data that I do have because I don't, mm-hmm. I've never yeah. specifically studied that, that um, question, but here's some things that I, that, that I do know. One, the, the personality characteristics of people who will provide an anonymous review on a site like Glassdoor are predictable. Okay. So mm-hmm. right away, basically 35, 40% of your population will never go do that. That's just who they are. That's just who they, whether they want to, whether they're, they're happy, sad, angry, or mad, it doesn't matter. They just won't do it. So, so certain, so, so you're losing about 35% of the world by assuming that that's the representation mm-hmm. of everybody. Now, the second piece is, is, is the person's willingness to both praise or not. And that's a personality characteristic as well. Some people are looking around every day for snakes under rocks, and some people are looking around every day for the sun to come up. Okay. And, and, and those are personality characteristics. And, and so you, you're, you're looking at the personality characteristics of the person. And so and those are predictable as well. But what we don't know in an anonymous setting is who, who those people are and what they're doing. And so my, my suggestion into organizations and my suggestion into those is that, you know, like it or not, you have you've created some level of energy in humans out there that have decided to say something about you. And mm-hmm. the general proposition is, is that it's good, bad, or ugly, right? I mean, that you're a five, you're a three and a half, or you're a two. And, mm-hmm. and, the, and so where do you want to go to, 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 to do something about that? And, 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 and what matters? This kind of brings up the concept in a lot of times of employee engagement and things of that nature. And I, I often tell my clients, I go, if, if, if you're unwilling to change a variable, 
for God's sakes, don't ask people about it. If you, you know, if you ask people, do you, do you like how much you're paid? And they say no. And then you say, well, too bad. We're not going to do anything about that. Then why did you ask? And so, yeah, um, the menu in front of hungry people, unless you've got some burgers in the back. (laughs) That's a better way to put it than me, Ben. Yes, absolutely. You said that in your consulting practice, one of the first things that you do in, in many projects is figure out whether the words on the wall reflect the reality in the organization. How do you go about determining what the culture and organization is like and how close or far off it is from from the culture it says it wants to be yeah i mean multiple ways ben i mean i i you know obviously i grew up under um bob hogan and and so i i believe in assessments i believe in individual differences and and i believe in using those individual differences to be able to predict things and so in a lot of ways Culture it stems from a, com- a collection of the basically the exec team's personality characteristics, and this could be their positive personality, like normal characteristics, five-factor model kind of stuff. Could be negative characteristics, the derailment characteristics, and things of that nature. Also, could be their value system. What's in their heart? What do they care about on a day-to-day basis? And 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 a final piece in this is how are they solving problems and and making decisions on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Culture, culture can go really, really well. Culture matters a heck of a lot less when you've got really, really good ideas going around and they're successful. And that, that unfortunately that's true. And, and so we, we often, so, so one, one path would be to take a look at the executive team. And what you'll find when you look at that is there's probably two or three things that are consistent around all of them. That's mm-hmm. the things why they came together we all love money or we actually want to help the world or we believe in creating tight networks inside of our organization or we just come to work to work or we are motivated by solving the next grand challenge or we come to work every day because we get to do something no one else in the world does. There's different reasons why people come together. And the first thing is I want to figure out that. All right. And the best place to do that is to find it from the, the top of the organization. Those of you who don't have assessments or don't own assessment practices or this and that, focus groups are a great way to get there, too. I only have, you know, you just have to make sure that the people in your focus group have an opinion and are willing to share it. Okay. And that's all I ask for. Quiet people in focus groups are a waste of time, right? And then you can look for more what you are looking for, kind of more artifacts, if you will, or more cultural cues or clues Mm -hmm. out there. I'm looking at turnover rates. I'm looking at, I'm looking at engagement data if they have them. I'm looking at yearly performance evaluations. Does everyone get the exact same rating? I'm grabbing clues from virtually anywhere that I can to try to pull that together. But what you really find and where, where, where we really kind of start that's just the starting point right and then for us what we try to do is then we say okay if these two or three things matter at the top of the organization but we say there's six things that matter here which of those six things actually get spewed forth by each of these leaders right so you know and this is one of those things if 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 my company or if my leaders value money over safety for instance, or or speed, they value money and speed over or mm-hmm. over some other things. Even though my my vision says we're a safe company, we believe in safety and this that and the other. Am I as a manager indicating to my employees that safety is important or speed? And so while and and this is the delusion, this is the disillusionment or the dis, uh, you know the the. the 
the, the, the dilution of culture, because if you're top, if you can find two or three things, your top 10 people care about, then you go out to the next 40, their own personality and their own belief systems will matter. And, and you'll see which things they'll follow and which ones they won't. And then you'll see their employees follow the things that matter to their boss, but not the other things. And then there's their individual and, and that leakage of culture is, is mm-hmm. it's amazing to me that cultures even exist, quite frankly. You mentioned trying to identify the gap between where the culture actually is and where the client wants to see the culture to go. And this is something that I see all the time on social media is, is basically anytime anyone shares any research on an intervention designed to solve some specific problem or to help mitigate that problem, there's just a chorus of people that say, that's not enough. You need to change the culture. You need to change the culture to the point where Every problem an organization faces, reliably, someone's going to say the only way to fix this is to fix the culture. I have a couple of questions based on that. First, I have an idea in my own mind of an ideal organizational culture. Most of us do, just like we have an image in our mind of our ideal of what the country should be like or what our family should be like. Should I be trying to get my organization closer to that ideal culture? Or should we be trying to be more of who we are now? That's a great question. And I'm, I'm not going to be the psychologist that says it all depends. But in a little bit of a way, Ben, it, it, it does. And, and, and where, where I try to go with that concept is, is why do we need to be that? Okay, why are we choosing to make that change and why are we choosing to get to the place where we want to get to? And I guess and I hope I'm answering your question. If not, please redirect. But I want to find that I want to I want to make this is where I use the word deliberate. And it's a little bit different than a lot of people use deliberate. There's a deliberately developmental organization and things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being very deliberate about what your culture is and, and, and more importantly, also what it's not. Okay, if we're changing our culture because someone says we think they should, then I don't know why. Why are we? Does it make business sense? Is it an important um, thing there? Is it, does is is does it does it rally around a, a concept that the people in our organization care about? And and if and if it doesn't, then 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 why are we changing it? And so the the jump across the chasm isn't just a jump; it's to get to somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if I can't see the get to somewhere piece of, of a focus on a culture change, then it should just go away because it's not it's not really beneficial. The yeah. other thing I the other thing I try to help organizations understand, and I I learned this I, I just saw it early on in 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 virtually any organization that I went into when we tried to do a change roughly thirty percent of the population loved what we were doing and were like woohoo let's go and let's do that and about thirty percent were like ah you know this is kind of cool but I'm kind of scared and I'll, I'll let you guys go first and thirty percent were like this will never work this sucks this is terrible this is bad you might ask and, and your 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 dutiful audience will wonder where the other ten percent is that. That's just people are weird, okay? Or unpredictable. It's you know, in statistics we call it error, but I call it the human function. And and I, I love that humans are unpredictable about you know for about ten percent of it. But so so regardless of your culture change, thirty percent of the people are going to love it. Thirty percent are going to be okay with some aspects of it, not others. And thirty percent mm-hmm. of them are going to hate it, okay? Mm-hmm. And and so 
there's got to be a reason more so than just because we're supposed to, or Bill Mm -hmm. Gates said we should, or, or Elon does this and he's cool. So we'll do it too. What's the real reason you want to make this change? And and does it make rational sense for your business? You mentioned that 30% roughly in a given group are going to hate the change. How do you work with those folks? That's that's a leadership issue. Okay, so now we've <laughs> gone from organization back to uh, individual, if you will, or uh, mm-hmm. industrial in a lot of ways. And so, in all of our culture change initiatives, we identify the thirty percent that are gonna that are gonna love it. And in a way, I mean, ab- absent of being real kind of blasé about it, we kind of make them the good kids, right? This is where we're trying to go, and these people are holding it up well, or helping us with it, propping it up. I guess is the right word. We then. Then identify that middle 30% and, and have the first 30% help them make the jump. Okay. Because part of the, the biggest difficulty with uh, culture change is people think it's a huge jump. And it doesn't have to be, Ben. There's, mm-hmm. there's, and and, and what, the, what the people who love it are able to do, they're able to say, man, I know it looks really big. If you do this, 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 and this, you're three quarters of the way there. And they make the jump look smaller. Okay, Mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden you have a majority, right? You know, you're at least 60 percent and and you have a 60 percent flowing your way and going your direction. And then the last 30 percent, it's it's a very important discussion. And this is where most culture change initiatives fail is because our performance management systems or our training around getting managers good feed, having managers give on have honest conversations with their employees and and not helping people see that they're impacting in a negative negative way versus a positive way or not helping them understand what's happening. If you don't have good managers or good leaders to carry it out, it's going to fail because then they'll say, well, yes, this won't matter that much. And then you have that leakage coming in, right? You have people going a different direction. One of the best organizations I ever worked with, and I've worked with them for a couple decades now, they, they grow through acquisition. I didn't mm-hmm. say merger. I said acquisition. <laughs> and that's the way they say it. And, and yeah. they, you know, they, they walk in and they say to the, the, the people in the organization, the, the newly bought people, they say, look, here's our culture and here's what we do. And we bought you probably because you're underperforming mm-hmm. in the marketplace. And here's five or six things. These are our non-negotiables. Here's our five or six non-negotiables. Now, we know 30% of you are going to love it. So come on board. Welcome. Mm-hmm. And you're going to fit in great. We know 30% of you are going to be somewhere in the middle. I, I encourage you to lean on those guys. And 30% of you probably aren't going to like it. And we'll tolerate that for 60 days. But by 90 days, either you will need to make a decision or we will. And at the end of the day, fortunately or unfortunately, it's it's mm-hmm. it's a 30%, you know, 30%, 30% go away. Mm-hmm. Not and, and half of that is because we've asked them to, and half of it is because they want to, but we're not keeping the special person around who does that one thing, or we're not worrying about some of those things mm-hmm. because organizations can succeed and exist without a, a a single individual. And so those are hard decisions. It's a little easier mm-hmm. in a merger and act, but what we found is their honesty. And what I'd call their deliberateness actually leaves people with fewer hard feelings because they're like, you know what? They told me, they told me this is what was going to happen. And it is. And now either I got to decide I want to come on board and and be part of this or I don't. And, and, and if I don't want to come on board, they'll figure it out and, and let me know. And so the hard feelings go away. Yeah. And working with this client, it sounds like the client organization that, that does all the acquisitions it isn't a matter of 
hey, let's try to take the edge off of this culture. Let's make it softer and fuzzier. It's This is the culture of the acquiring organization. They know exactly what they want. They communicate it clearly. So it's helping that organization be more of what it already is and have a clearer, easier to communicate version of itself to present to these internal stakeholders versus here's some ideal rainbow and puppy dogs version of culture that we want to try to push everybody toward. Yeah, that's and and I think Ben, that, that's exactly right. And I, I think that's why the 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 base rate of what we call mergers and act is what I think the base rate of failure is seventy percent or something like that. And and you know if you think about it, most of the people at the top of the organization are focusing on money. Okay, we can cut these group this, we can merge these two together and shave headcount, and we can save money this way, and we can do this. But they're not thinking about the culture, and they're and they're 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 not thinking how important it is. And and I don't. And, and, and I've said this a million times, I don't care what the culture is, but by God, you, you should be honest to it and you should be willing to, to, to talk about it. Now, I'm clearly some of the Fortune Fives or whatever, they're, they're going to say, we, we have to say these words. There's We're in a political mm-hmm. nightmare. We've got this, that, and the other, and these things have to come out of us. And 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 I'm okay with, with some version of that, but the writing on the wall, if you're going to put something on the wall then you could have multiple messages if necessary. Here's how the community will perceive the writing on the wall. Here's how we enact the writing on the wall inside of this organization, okay? I have an organization, for instance, that has as one of their pillars is we aggressively compete to win and define the standard in our industry. And the word aggressive and compete Mm. and win can, can scare a lot of people, but that's how they see themselves and they're okay that way. And so you think, and, and so then you, you, you know, the, the top five people and I came up with this and, and it's one of five or six statements that they make. And, and then the next 30 people had to decide how do they live that and how don't they? And, and, you know, one person said, my aggressiveness is, you know, he, he's the loud macho, "Ah, I'm going to take over this place and show you where we're going. We're going to take that hill. Let's go. And, and that's an okay version of it. But this other guy said, you know, I'm not that I'm, I'm Bill Belichick. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to be so aggressive in planning and so aggressive on competing on how to take care of deficiencies and inefficiencies that I can dink and dunk and, and, and go up and down the field on you at will taking five and 10 yard chunks instead of hail Mary's all day long. And I'll still get there, but my aggression is quiet. My aggression is behind the scenes, but it looks like this. And that combination of letting both of those two people be themselves while living the culture and being deliberate about it makes Mm -hmm. it successful for them. If, if you could wave a magic wand and everyone in the world would understand something about organizational culture, what would that thing be? What would be the thing that would put you out of work? I put myself out of work all the time. Okay. So, and that's a good, and you know, Ed Shine taught us that a long time ago. If you're a good consultant, you go away and, and, and we do, and we do, but I, I, I'll kind of repeat myself here in a little bit, Ben, which is, you know what, you can try to be someone else. And thirty percent lo- and the thirty 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 will happen. You can be yourself, and the thirty 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 can happen. Two things: why not be yourself? And two, why not tell everybody that? 
And, and the second point, and I'll expound upon it a little bit, is we're so afraid as managers to, and, and this doesn't sound like me, right? But we're so afraid to be vulnerable. We're so afraid of, oh, I, I don't want anyone to know how I really am or who I am or what I feel or any of this stuff. And so they're going to have to figure it out over years and years of watching me. And, and, and why can't we just be loud about it up front and say, hey, man, I, I get grumpy on Fridays or, you know what, you bring a new idea into me and it's not my idea. I'm going to say no first. But I promise you, if you ask me, you, you have the right to ask me three times. Okay, <laughs> because I'm a, I just I'm a no first person or every time we start a new project, I'm seeing snakes in the under rocks and I'm I'm everything's this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. If you can deal with me for a month and a, a week and a half on a project, it'll get better, I promise. And if it doesn't call me out on it. And so why aren't we creating these leadership what I call service level agreements between ourselves and our employees and our peers and our bosses that just say, hey, man, here's who I am and here's how I'm going to run my business. And so many of us think we have to run it in such a different way. It just doesn't make sense to me. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, to talk to us today. This was a fascinating conversation, and I'm going to share uh, a link to to your business. And uh, hopefully if there are any listeners that are interested in finding out more about what you do, or just have questions about anything that you've shared, you'll be okay with them reaching out to you. Absolutely. I love that. And if, if you're the students, I, I love giving time to, to, to people who are motivated. If you're motivated to do something for your career, then you know feel free to give us a call and, and I'd be glad to give you some thoughts or advice. Obviously, Ben, I have opinions, so I'm willing to share them. I really appreciate you letting me be on, this, on the show today. And if there's anything we can do, hopefully in the future, we can maybe tackle another topic and, and do it all over again. Sounds good. Thanks again, Jared. Have a great one. All right. You take care. Appreciate it.